I feel pretty good on a day-to-day basis. I can get the things that I want, but that's only if I just kind of block the debt that I'm in out, like put my blinders on and be like, just don't look at the debt. It's under blanket. If you don't look at the debt, then you're fine. Inside a briefcase. But if you look at the debt, (laughs) you're going to pass out. And no one knows the passcode to that briefcase Because you got dead girl. So, (laughs) and I do feel like... (laughs) Ice on my hands, no diamonds on my girl. Don't drive a Mercedes, I'ma keep it real. Nothing in my pocket but a five dollar bill. Guess I go to Taco Bell and get a combo meal. I swear to God, I don't wanna be a broke chick. But I'm feeling like a broke chick. Couple diamonds on the bezel of my Yodamar. Michael J. Foxin', cause I'm wishing that shit won't shit. I'm a fiend for a discount. I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in rural Minnesota. And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown, author of Emergent Strategy, co-editor of Octavia's Brood, writer, facilitator of Black liberation work, auntie extraordinaire, doula, and pleasure activist living in Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World, our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. This episode, we're going to be diving into something that really was not easy for either of us. We're going to be talking about class and money. This is a, an episode that's responding directly to some feedback and questions that we got after last season about what, what is our class and how do we relate to money and kind of how do we live lives that seem to be so black and fabulous and um, does that actually grok with our class experience and what it has to do with surviving for the apocalypse is we really believe that we have to get super honest about our relationships to class our relationships to resources and what we have and how we have conversations about that really honestly in order to begin to pivot into a system in which economics is something that is transparent and shared and cooperative and collaborative so in this episode we'll be talking not only about our own experience experiences, but about some of the experiments that are exciting to us in the economic realm. It's going to rock, y'all. Enjoy the show. So, um, we are very relaxed at the moment, moving into this conversation about class yes um (laughs) yeah it's actually great we're in my apartment in detroit and um i live alone in my apartment in detroit i'm very lucky that um i know my landlord and it's almost a rent controlled situation um like it's you know it's a situation where it's like near rent control near rent control it's like relationship rent control like i know them and um, so even as the as Detroit has been gentrifying, I haven't had to see my rent going up, 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 up um, mm-hmm. in that process. And so I've been able to stay here on my own. And I was just laughing because we're sitting under a gravity blanket, um, which is like one of my latest purchases, big purchases mm-hmm. <laughs> that I made that was like, oh, I have anxiety um, sometimes that is really overwhelming and learned about this from another friend who had it. And was like, I'm going to invest in that and get one of these. And um, I want to name these things explicitly because this episode, we want to talk about class and we want to talk about what we have access to. And this episode is coming in direct relationship to some feedback that we got um, from the first season, which was great feedback and really interesting, Mm -hmm. um, which was someone saying, like, it really sounds like you two both live like fabulous lives like you mentioned trips to Greece and trips to Mexico and writing residencies and just all these things that feel like and you live on a house on acres of land exactly (laughs) like um and you know for both of us we know both the struggles of our lives that allow for those things and the the agreements and cooperative things and all the stuff that sort of goes into it Mm -hmm. um and like those who know us know those things and we know the debt that we walk with and all these things we're like oh yeah it probably sounded really (laughs) yeah fabulous (laughs) exactly like how would anyone else know those things so um in response to that feedback and just and just really sitting back and listening to the person was like oh yeah this would actually be a great thing to sit and have some conversation around both kind of how we 
live fabulous lives mm-hmm. um, as black facilitators who serve social justice work and mm-hmm. what our ideal visions for economy actually are. Um, and so we wanted to have that conversation. Totally. With and it's exciting because, you know, we both in, in, in a variety of ways, we've both been doing work over the years that centers around economic justice and, um, and the, you know, the facilitation work that I do right now is very much focused on building a solidarity economy and, mm-hmm. um, and historically I've done a lot of work around building alternative economies of care. And so it feels really exciting to sort of like situate this conversation about like how have we manifested, um, access to resources in our lives within a broader conversation about how do we shift the way we think about resources and access and cooperation and collectivity um and what becomes possible when we're when we're orienting through that lens versus orienting through the lens that most of us were socialized within yeah and having a really clear sense at all times of reparations um like i feel like that's a theme that that -hmm. flows throughout the work that i do with movement for black lives and for all black liberation work but just being a black person in this country and always having an eye towards, oh, like, pay me what you owe me. How, <laughs> you how am I going to get what you owe me? <laughs> um, that, that, you know, that, um, that cost that could never be repaid, right? So, so maybe a place to begin would be to talk a little bit about, like, what our class experience was growing up. That's great. Um, because I think that, you know, like, um, like many people in this country, Adrian and I had the experience of, um, bearing witness to our parents like class climbing over the course of our childhood mm-hmm. um, you know and I mean we should say our our parents as individuals came from completely different class backgrounds right our yeah. mother came from um, more of a upper middle class background um, grew up in a family that had access to a lot of land ancestral land um and she grew up you know on a bunch of that land her parents raised horses um she had family who had had you know a dairy farm for many generations and so um you know so and and that that waxed and waned over time but her family you know she grew up in a family that had more access to wealth and resources our father grew up in a family with no access to wealth and resources and yep. um, grew up and parts of his childhood lived in like very deep poverty. Um, with and a single mother. Single mother. Um, or single mother who was in and out of relationship, but mm-hmm. mostly single. Um, he was the seven oldest kids. of seven kids. Yeah. And he started, I think his first job, like he started working when he was 12. She worked as a domestic worker mm-hmm. um, for his whole adult life in various like hotels in and around the Pendleton so this area. Is, interestingly, dad recently told me his actual first job, mm. which was when he was seven. What? And he, in the summer times when he was seven years old, he would, I remember when he told me this, I was just like floored, but um, he would um, catch a truck that would go out to the cotton fields in the summer and he would pick cotton all day. What? Like he had a, he, and I don't think that he was the only kid from his neighborhood who did this, but there were some kids who would go and then they would get paid whatever like small, tiny amount of money they would get paid for a day's worth of like cotton, cotton picking in the field. And I remember him telling me this over dinner one night when he was visiting me in Minnesota. And I was just like, it was the first I'd ever heard it. And he kind of shared it as like an offhanded anecdote of this thing that he did when he was seven. And, and he, he had such pride in his eyes. He was like, I was so proud of myself for the money that I brought home to my mom. I remember I was so proud of myself. Oh my God. Sorry. Right. (laughs) I know. Isn't that amazing? I just totally didn't know that. And you know, it's interesting because like a year or two later, I remember I was doing some like therapeutic work around my relationship with him. And one of the things that I was, my therapist was having me do was like sort of, um, visualize myself like, 
like basically dropping down into that field and like putting my arms around him and like being like the adult version of myself, like sort of rescuing the child version of him from the situation. Um, which, you know, it's not, he didn't feel like he needed rescuing. And so I'm holding all of that, all the complexity complexity of that, right. That like, but then it's interesting to have a seven year old child. Like I have a seven year old child, Siobhan, and to imagine her feeling to imagine her to imagine our family having to be in an economic situation where she perceived a need to do something like that and would like take it upon herself to like go make money for the family is really interesting because it's like it's she's also I and I can see how it would happen right because she's also at an age where she's noticing everything she can see everything that's going on in our lives right and she perceives herself as a worker and so it's so it's it's so there's like many layers there's the layer of it that's like, wow, how horrifying that a child that age would have to work and get to get paid money for, for, you know, and then there's the layer of it that's like, wow, like the incredible survival skills that all of our families have. Right. That like, that, and the, and the early, the, the early age at which that those mechanisms can get activated. Oh, sorry. I'm just like so floored by this. I, you know, it's also, um, I mean, okay. So one of the things it brings up for me is how, how stories and how stories and truths and secrets and all this gets passed down and how much that is tied to shame and pride around money. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and like this sense of what we have and don't have, like how I just feel like we're still in an early generation of being like, Hey, let's talk openly about about money, money (laughs) what we have and where it came from. And, and then I, I think, so there's part of my brain that's going off down that trail. And then another part that's just like, you know, this bridge from slavery to indentured servitude to working to, you know, like slavery to sharecropping. Exactly. Right. But I'm also, yes, I'm also thinking, thank you. I'm like, (laughs) my brain is like, whoa. Uh, (laughs) I'm also having a moment of, um, I'm like, who owned that cotton field? Like who was paying him and like who, who had the resources at that time how did he get connected with it? How, what was the experience? Were there, you know, like of other children? Was it, yeah, it's just like, how do you move from something that had been an experience of slavery to an experience of, I'm proud to be making this money to mm-hmm. something else? And um, yeah, it's going to take me a little while. Yeah, to, yeah let, let to, that one kind of like percolate through. Yeah. I, yeah, I, and I remember, I remember, I, I remember having exactly that reaction <laughs> at the like, dinner table when he told me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so our parents, you know, so as elucidated by that story, our parents came from vastly different um, class experiences. And then, you know, they met, they fell in love, they eloped after dating for three months. <laughs> they have an amazing love story, which we should probably just have a whole episode where we just interview them about their love story. Yeah. And, you know, as we've probably mentioned before, our parents are, our mother is white, our father is black. They're both from South Carolina. Yeah. You know, grew up in a, in a fairly deep South situation where, um, you know, and, and they got married, you know, maybe like five years after interracial marriage was legalized. So, you know, it's like, it's still a time where it's, and it uh, wasn't culturally accepted at all. Not at all. Like it was very dangerous still for them to be doing what they were doing. Interestingly, it feels like, again, it's (laughs) barely, yeah, barely. Okay. Um, and so Um, from many sides, I feel like there's a lot of, different perspectives that's ugh, another whole show it's a whole another whole I feel like show everything we talk about, everything we talk about is like that's another show. whole show but anyway so all <laughs> that all this is is just getting to the fact that our father also in the same time period went into the military as a career officer yeah. and so our experience growing up like our class experience was one that involved um so when i say class climbing i'm referring to you know the ways in which um you know well, I, I think many of us are aware of the fact that in in the United States, there's like a real mythology around upward mobility, upward class mobility. And um, and the reality is that depending it, it depends very much on your like geographic situation, social positioning, 
all those things, whether or not you actually have access to upward mobility. And it's very few people who do. But we grew up in a family where there was access to upward class mobility. And it had a lot to do with the fact that our father was a career military officer on a track that like pushed him upwards. So we very directly experienced going from being in a more, more of like a, what you would consider to be a typical like working class family situation to being middle class. And then after we both graduated from college, our parents basically became like upper middle class. Yeah. Although the thing that always feels important to layer into it for me is that in, as we were growing up, that class was not necessarily tied to economics, uh, like tied to resources in the same way. So in the military, they do this beautiful thing of like not paying you very much at all, but (laughs) then they give you all this, um, you know, like rank. Um, so it's like we had the status, right? We had the class, uh, the officer thing Mm -hmm. where it was like, okay, we have to get dressed up a certain way. And he's wearing his gorgeous outfits, uh, you know, dress blues, dress greens. And Mm -hmm. then we're going to fancy events and we have to know how to eat things properly. And all that is happening, but it's still not translating to like wealth that would that would you know it's not like you leave the military you're just like was well, just bringing all this wealth that we gained in the military right. like no, that's not, not how it happened so i i remember having the experience of um ha- you know after i had been working i think i'd been working for like maybe 10 years eight or 10 years or something and i i told dad at one point like what i was earning and he was like oh that's what i was earning like when i left the military after 30 years of service right um and so just having these moments of like oh like the the numbers didn't necessarily match with the the economics of the class level and Mm -hmm. i think that feels like an important thing when we talk about like how you make these leaps or, or and not that these leaps are desirable necessarily, but that this is how we get socialized. So for someone like dad, it was like very important to be like, oh, we want to have more. We never have enough. We need to have more. Right. So that piece feels important to name that because there were other officers, kids. And I, I remember one in particular who I was close friends with who did come from wealth and uh, I'm going to not say her name, but she came from wealth. There was like a town named after her somewhere. Like, you know, it was a whole different experience. And they were legacy military. Um, it was kind of like a legacy military family. It's like everyone had been officers. Everyone had served in big wars. And oh, it was like a big, you know, it was like a different path. And then there was folks like dad. And dad was one of the rare folks who was at the officer level who um, came from poverty, poverty drafted into the military was mm-hmm. like, this is my way out of poverty. Mm-hmm. But because dad all through college was doing ROTC hardcore, was able to enter at an officer level. Right. Mm-hmm. So I just think all of that is really, to, to me feels really, uh, Oh, this is where all this nuance happens where yeah. it's like, sometimes you have experiences of class that are not tied to having wealth. And even now I feel like that's a lot of my experiences that I'm like, I have these experiences where because I'm facilitating groups, I facilitate foundations often. Mm -hmm. So I will get flown to some place that I'm like, what? I can't believe this is a place that exists and that people come to for fun or something. Um, And we'll be in these very fancy experiences with very fancy, you know, I just remember the first time I sat down at a table where there were like, you know, so many utensils on either side of it and I was just like I, do I, I, do <laughs> I don't know what to do um and someone's like just start from the outside and go in but I was just like I, I literally can't figure this out but use the tiniest spoon first just go small to big um and but you know just sitting in these spaces and and kind of having access to that level of uh luxurious experiences and then coming home with my little paycheck and being like, okay, this little paycheck has got to last me for the next two months until mm-hmm. like the next time I have a gig. And during those two months, I'm back to like a ramen level life or whatever. Right. Right. right <laughs> and then right. going back into, so doing these experiences of kind of wide range of yes. class living. And then now living an experience where I'm like, I feel pretty good on a day to day basis. I can get the things that I want, but that's only if I just kind of block the debt that I'm in out, like put my blinders it's on and be like, just don't look at the debt. It's under blankets. <laughs> if you don't look at the debt, then you're fine. Inside a briefcase. But if you look at the debt, like <laughs> you're going to pass out. <laughs> and no one knows the passcode to that briefcase you got dead, girl. So, <laughs> and I do feel like, <laughs> I feel like I read something a few years ago that was like generation debt. Like that's, that's a way of understanding the generation that we are currently living it's in. It's true because, I mean, if you think about like the things that 
the things that our parents' generation could do without going into debt or without, or without going into debt that they couldn't dig themselves out of. Mm -hmm. Like the, 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 you know, that there was our parents' generation and the generation before, you know, the ability to buy a house, the ability to pay for call, going to college, the ability to buy a car, you know what I mean? Like, and those things being things that were feasible to do without, sinking yourself into a debt that you were going to be paying off for five to 10 to 20 years. Exactly. Um, it's just, those things are not true for our generation at all. They're not. And I think one thing to, I feel like to close the loop a little bit on our parents journey, cause it was like, we got to like middle-class coming out of the military. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad then got hired by a major defense industry, um, corporation, corporation. And suddenly was making bank and that lasted for like a year and a half or two years or something that he was like really making a lot and they bought their first home, you know, it was like, and they, they were like, this is our house, (laughs) you know, and they, it's such a big deal that they're like, we're committed to this house. Um, And then he got laid off from that corporation. Mm -hmm. And when he got laid off from that corporation, I still feel a lot of love for our family about this move that, um, we asked my sister, our other sister asked him not to be in the defense industry anymore. Like, mm-hmm. cause he, the option there was like, this is what you spent your whole life doing. This is what, you know, you know, you keep looking for jobs in that field. Right. And instead it was like, don't, we don't want you, it was not worth it. Like, even though you can make a lot of money there, it's not worth it. It's yeah. not worth it for your spirit, for your soul. Nothing good comes from those corporations. You've given enough of your life to that kind of work. And he listened to that. And so now they run basically a mom and pop shop, state farm insurance office. Mm -hmm. Um, And And they love it. They love it. They work together. They work hard. It's, Mm -hmm. they, it feels like they're back, you know, they're just like, they work all the time. They work so hard and they work in ways that is really about helping people. Like they come home with stories about like, here's how we tried to help people every day. Um, So it just feels important to, to, you know, it's like, oh, this arc of, I feel like this is kind of the first thing that they've chosen. Like they've gotten to choose like, oh, this, we weren't driven into this right. from poverty and it wasn't just the thing that was available, but it's like, actually we really want to spend our lives being yeah. helpful. And dad really went through a process of like discernment around the type of business he would what, like to open yeah. when it was beautiful too, to see him. Cause he's someone who has always had a real entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. I remember when we were in, well, <laughs> this would have been in, when I was in elementary middle school time period that, Um, he actually went back to school and got an MBA, you know, so he kind of always had this vision for his life that he was going to start a business. Yeah. Um, he wanted to be our manager of us as a girl group. That was the business. He wanted to be the manager. Oh, Matthew Knowles. Uh, he was like, I want, I want you all to have a girl, a girl band called, called Brown Sugar, (laughs) which that's. We don't have to go into that right no, now, but like we that don't. would be. Let's just add that to the list of other episodes we have to have, which are about like things that mean things and also mean other things. Um, but he wanted to be our manager, yes, yeah, um, and um, but yeah. So it's like you know, I I feel really happy for him, happy for them, and it's happy. It's wonderful to see them. Um, you know, I think that this is another part of like what makes class and wealth and income experiences navigable is like who are your partners in the journey yeah and um can like do you have people who are partnering you with you in your journey that like have similar goals to you and actually want to live uh what are aligned around like here's the type of life that we want to live yeah and that's something that's always been very true for mom and dad um, and it's something that I've kind of taken into my own my own journey around like income and class stuff with my partner because we also come from disparate class experiences and um, and yet we have like we're very aligned around the type of life that we're trying to build uh-huh. um, and so it means that in terms of what money we do have which is like very little and seems to be like literal or littler all the time. <laughs> um, but yeah. in terms of what money we do have access to, we're very, um, we are very aligned around how we want to use it. Um, and like, what are the things that we want to be yeah. um, like expending resources on? I love this point around like that. There's something that's like, Oh, what is a vision we have for the quality of life that we want to share? Mm-hmm. And then I think there's also something really powerful in what you just said of like, it seems to be smaller and smaller, the little and little, the amount of money you actually have. This also feels like something that has changed 
in our lifetimes is that I feel like when we were growing up, we were primarily in a single income household. Like yeah. dad had the, had had work and mom was doing officers wives things, right? Like she I think of her as an organizer. Like she, she really was doing was community, doing community organizing stuff, yeah. things, but from this particular framework. So it was Until always I was like, in high school and then she and then she got work. some work, right? Yeah. And uh and she's always loved the work and she's the kind of person I'm like oh if she had been working all that time she would just be like boss bitch somewhere like she has a huge capacity for yeah she exactly she's (laughs) she's like I mean she's very powerful very she has a lot of synthesis capacity you know she's very competent and so but it was a single family household and that was fine right and and even though it wasn't abundant necessarily like we had enough and we were not hungry and now to see that no, we have enough, but we had like, you know, you know, a parent at home, which is, like, we had a parent at home with us, which was everything. Very and like, you know, I mean, for us, I was just like, Oh, I look back and I'm like, that made such a difference. Like there were so many experiences I went through that having mom there, having mom present, having mom willing to be like, I'm coming in to, to beef with your geometry teacher. who's trying to fail you, you know, all these different, because she's racist, you know, right. like there's experiences <laughs> yes. that I'm like, Oh, having her there. She was the most serious beefer with teachers. She, she got into like, it with oh, everyone. I will sit down <laughs> she was like, and tell you all about yourself. Exactly. And <sighs> like, that's, you know, to me, that's still like the sense of like advocacy or you fight for who you care for, like mm-hmm. comes from that. But the point that I wanted to make there was like now watching you be a two income household from most of the time that y'all have been together raising children mm-hmm. um, with some exceptions to that, that have been very like intentional, like, Oh, we're going to take a break here or we're, you know, we're struggling. We're trying to find work here yeah. but for the most part being a two income household and still having such a hard time being able to make ends meet. Oh, and yeah. it's just like, Oh, thinking about like what all has changed in the larger economy to make that true. So yeah. that it's like, you do have insane debt. It is really hard to make, ends meet it's really and it's really it's particularly intense right now because we're coming off of a period of being a single income household where um my partner just completed um a master's program Mm -hmm. and so over the last two and a half years i've been the um sole breadwinner for our family supporting him through grad school and um and of course in that time period i've gone through um some pretty significant changes in terms of like even uh how I'm working and who I'm working for um, that have been very positive. But it is it is interesting to look at our lives and be like, you know, now that now that my partner is working again, um, things are shifting back in like a, a positive direction. But mm-hmm. but it, we can we can kind of see how long it's going to take us to actually dig ourselves out of the debt that yeah. we are now in. Yep. And it's very intense. And it's interesting, too, because I think, you know, we do live in we do live in a society where um we're we're all collectively discouraged from talking directly about this stuff yes and so it i have interesting experiences sometimes where if i bring up my debt situation or my financial situation people automatically want to give me advice about things (laughs) about how i like how Mm -hmm. i need to manage my money differently or how well if people make different choices and different you know and there's like a lot of coded language around personal responsibility that happens in those conversations and it's like yeah yes and actually one of the things that I can say for myself truly and in part that in part has to do with growing up in the military and going through military schools, department of defense schools is that I actually know a lot about money management and I have from a very young age. Like I learned, I learned how to balance a checkbook in middle school, you know? So like I, I've always been very, very adept at financial management. It's not my, my ability to financially manage my life is not the, problem I'm up against yeah the problem I'm up against is like I am trying to have a life (laughs) (laughs) exactly and trying to have a life inside capitalism racialized capitalism right where it's just sort of like oh I want to I, you know, I'm being given, I'm being shown all the time. Here's what a quality life looks like. And then it's always set beyond what I can reach. And I'm supposed to just work and work and work my knuckles to the bone in order to get those things. Like, I really feel like that, that personal bootstraps, which is like, we grew up in a personal bootstraps family, you know, like think dad had that mentality of like, you work hard, Mm -hmm. you pull yourself up and 
then trying to step back and be like, that is very much an exception to the rule. And as we both got politicized, being like, that's just not the case for the majority of people. And for me, you know, I'm like wanting to have a life is one of the reasons. I also think for me, I went through a long period of romanticizing poverty, romanticizing the not having, Mm. like both his experience of and being like, oh my gosh, like that is the experience of black Americans. And that is the experience of most people in this country. And we have to figure out a ways to reject luxury and to reject wealth and to reject, you know, it was just sort of like, to me, wealth is sort of like absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And I just like grafted wealth into that. Right. It's like absolute wealth also corrupts. Like there's no way to be wealthy and have integrity. There's no way to be wealthy and care about the earth. There's no way. It like, I was just like that. It just, whatever money does to you, it sickens the mind and it's not good. And so for me, I was just like, I reject it. And for a long time, I just was like, you know, I would take jobs that were paying me half of what maybe, you know, would have been like a living wage or would have made sense at that time. And I was just like proudly doing so. And I remember moments of, you know, there was a moment where I was, I had a job and this sort of comparative chart came out about, you know, all the people in my field and, and the jobs at that level. And those it was, salary studies just make you want to like, I cried. I actually yes, cried yes. because I knew I was like, I know that I'm working just as hard as all these other people. And I know that I have this analysis that is like, I'm not trying to get wealthy in this work. I'm just trying to do my work and I just want to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I want to get paid str- what I'm worth, but I'm struggling to survive. I didn't yeah. even have a sense that I'm getting paid what I was worth. Like I've had to be convinced and I still have to be convinced on a regular basis. Like, Every time people are like, oh, how much do you want to get paid for that? Every single time I'm grabbed up and I'm like, nothing, whatever you want. And like, right. instead of being like, no, there's an amount that I know I have set that allows me to live. It allows me to be able to support your family. It allows me to be able to support other families of people that I care about mm-hmm. and love. It allows me to um, come and see the children when I want to see them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not cream of the cropping over here, you know, right. like, <laughs> and I, but, but there's still such, for me, such a sense of shame tied to receiving resources, period. And so I think then um, part of that is because it always feels so individual, right? I'm just like, oh, even if I individually flew somewhere and did a piece of work or whatever, I'm like, I did that work as part of a collective effort. And how do we, how do we always be thinking in a collective way about economy? And, um, and I, I sit in this question, you know, I, I have, I have friends that hold down like kind of every economic worldview. And I think one of the things I'd love for us to do on this show over the, over time is hold this question of economy as one of the major questions we're exploring. Um, Because I would love to have people come on and talk explicitly about socialism, about the experiments of socialism that we've seen Mm -hmm. um, in our lifetimes and in this, in the past century, in this century. And then, what the living experiments of socialism are now, why we should move towards it, why not. I would love to have people come on and talk about pluralist commonwealths. I would love to talk about cooperative economics. I would love to, you know, just have people come on who are doing these economic experiments because I think so often what happens is we get caught up where it's like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I'm an anti-capitalist, but where do I actually get into- But I'm on this hamster wheel. I'm on the hamster wheel and how do Mm -hmm. I, you know, you know, so- one other example or one other thing that feels important to share here is that part of my being an anti-capitalist getting politicized in college was I decided I'm not paying for wars. I'm just not, I'm not. So I became a war tax resistor, but I didn't, do it I did it in an Adrian way you didn't do it like in the normal way (laughs) I didn't do it in the way that's so there's like one way (laughs) that's like I'm going to keep my earnings under $14,000 a year so that I'm not required to pay. Um, I'll just be really poor. Right, I'll just be, and that's what it is, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, this is one way you can do it. Um, And I couldn't do that way because, you know, every kind of job or all the kind of works that I, work Mm -hmm. that I wanted to do, that just wasn't working out that way. And people, I was like, will you work with me? And figure, no, you know, people are like that, that, you know, there's just such resistance to this as an idea. And so I would just write a letter to the IRS each year a uh, very self-righteous letter to the IRS each year saying, you know, as long as you continue to engage and, and I would list whichever wars were active at that mm-hmm. time. Um, then I they write back and be like, you missed one. They didn't. They never wrote me back. They <laughs> no, never they acknowledged me in any way. Then after 10 years of doing this, right. And people were like, they're going to catch up to you at some point. Um, and, you know, I had going in my favor. I had um, my, 
I had social security number confusion for a long time, like some social security dyslexia. So I had two numbers that were flipped on my social security for a long time, which I think helped, (laughs) Uh, but it was a mistake kind of help. But you know, so this is what I mean by an Adrian way, right? I was like sort of stumbling and calling it dancing. Like I was just like, I'm doing this. And, and I had other friends who were also kind of stumbling and doing it, but Mm. everyone was doing it in different ways. And none of us, None, like it didn't matter which way we were doing we all got caught and we mm. all got caught up and so for me the experience of getting caught up was um, I was in a grocery store and I had been doing some sugar cleanse thing and then I was in a grocery store about to binge the fuck out so I was in a grocery store and in my cart it was like ice cream Oreos chips I was just like I don't know what what all was going on that day but there's it's just one of those days where you I was like having a day. I can't do this anymore. (laughs) Everything sucks. I need some sugar, you know, and like, that's my go-to. So I'm sitting there with this cart and it feels important because of how I received what happened. I go to the (laughs) checkout thing and I'm like, I think I had even already opened like one of the things. So I was just, I'm going to start doing this right now. And, oh my God, it's so vulnerable to share. Anyway, so (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, I get there, I go pull out my card and they swipe it and they're like um this isn't working and I was like you know I know I have money on that card like I'm not the kind of person who goes swiping stuff that I don't think is gonna work (laughs) it's just not like whatever that kind of person is I'm not that person well I'm mostly because I I get way too embarrassed (laughs) I get way too embarrassed by it and I start coming up with like oh no that's just this I like well for some reason with this stranger I feel like I need to tell them like a whole financial story (laughs) this is all tied together right this like money shame is so deep I'm just like the spread Exactly right. I'm just like, oh no, I can never have anyone think I don't have enough. Like that feels trained into me from yes. forever, right? Yes. So I always, you know, I'll be like, I will pull. I'd rather pull out a card, a credit card, where I'm like, I know this will go through, than pull out my debit card and have it like not go through. Like that to me is like oh, the mm-hmm. shock. So I, I have her swipe a card. It's not working. I was like, what? I mean, like, there's no way. I know. Right. I was like, try this card. Swipe it. Nothing. No, it's not working. Right. So then I'm like. Holy crap, right? So I take my little car. I was like, hold on. <laughs> so I pull my cart over because I'm not, not returning. I'm not not getting my Oreos. I mean, I need these, right? So I go over. I call my bank. And they're like, yeah, the U.S. government has shut down your accounts. And here's the number you need to call. Um, and I just felt, I literally, you know, like when a puppy gets grabbed up by the skin of its neck and it's just like hanging in the air yeah. like that. Like, I just felt like that. I was like, the ground has been pulled out from under me. I'm oh totally in someone else's control. Um, like, can they see me right now? <laughs> like, it felt like, like, oh my God, like, how, can you just, can you do that to are me? Are they about to come arrest and like, me? I'm talking to my bank. I'm like, I've been banking with you since I was 13 years old. And you you know, there's no protection. There's no warning. There's no anything. It's just like, okay, now the government says, and so then I had to call, I called the IRS. And again, this is where privilege comes in. Cause I'm like, I have enough, I think educational privilege got me through that. Cause yeah. I called yes. and I think was able to find the voice and find the way to talk to these people and like move through and makes, I was like, I will have a first like, payment Hi, to this you. This is Adrian Marie yes, Brown. Yes, Adrian Marie Brown. I am <laughs> fully employed, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. I will have some money to you, da, da, da. And I will, actually, that's, that's not true. The very first call to the IRS, um, I reached this dude from New York. He, and he knew he was, because he had the New York accent, which I cannot do. Okay, don't but try it. I'm not going to try it. It may happen anyway. But um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he gets on the phone with me and he's like, you got to pay your taxes. You just got to pay your taxes. And I was like, I. I understand. I've been doing oh, more tax resistance. Than, like he was like, all right. I mean, I don't agree with a lot of things the government does too, but you got to pay your taxes. Like, <laughs> so <laughs> you know, he was. It was just like, he was like you don't seem to understand. Exactly. The he was like, here. let me break it down for you. We live in a bureaucratic system. You can't step outside of it. You actually don't get to make that choice. Like I don't care what you believe or don't believe. Like right. you don't get to make that choice. And here's your bill. And they stated the number to me and I almost fainted and I was like, okay. And he was like, but you're not going to pay all that at once. And I'm a, and he transferred me to some other department. We figured out some payment plan mm-hmm. that would allow them to make my cards go through. I left the cart, right? It was like, <laughs> I have to leave this behind. So the one thing that I have to let at go. least this, well, and it, I took it as, okay, well, at least I'm getting this intervention on this sugar binge I was about right, to do. Right. <laughs> let me go back home, eat my lemon water or whatever the frick I was doing at the time. Right. And just like, <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to share that because it does feel important to say, um, it's not like we don't try to resist these systems of capitalism. It's not like, 
you know, it almost like this feels like a note from as an American to the rest of the world. Sometimes to be able to say like, there are those of us who are in this country who we understand um, how our economic choices are impacting your physical well-being and yeah. that our country comes after you on the funds and the, with the money on arms that we have paid for. Like we understand that and we try to resist. And yes. this is what happens when we try to resist is right. we get caught up and we get made to heal and, um, and then continue trying to find ways to resist. And, um, and so I live in that, you know, to me, I live in that contradiction now of trying to figure out all the time, like, what is the least amount? And now I'm back to this strategy. I'm trying to figure out again, like, I I cannot in good conscience pay taxes into this government at all. So what, what do, I do, do I do? What right? do I do? Yeah. And how do I do it? And that might be another episode, too, is having people. There's a whole body of folks who talk about war tax resistance as an ongoing strategy and different ways of doing it. And, you know, I will say when I took the took it on initially dad was in a very high ranking position in the u.s army and mm-hmm. i thought if they come and arrest me i'm i'm here for the story of that right to say yeah. <laughs> right a high-ranking officer's daughter because at that time you know it's like anyway i i just always think it's important um i'm trying to remember the the vice president at the time dick cheney mm-hmm. dick cheney's daughter had like come out as as gay and mm-hmm. it was just like the big thing and i yeah. was like you know it actually matters when the family members of these people who are who are engaged in this system mm-hmm. step out and say, I don't agree. Yeah. I don't align with this. I actually am living something that, that is counter to that. Mm-hmm. It felt like a strategy at the time. but <laughs> It's like my story about myself is my strategy. <laughs> well, yeah, so a couple, I guess I feel like I should share a couple of things in my own experience. Um yeah. Maybe one being about like ways that I have like succeeded in working the system um, when I was even more poor than I am now and how that relates to some of the things that I have access to now that probably like or not probably but that are more luxurious yeah. but are just sort of like things that I've like over time learned to ask for. Yeah. Um, and then and then I feel like I should probably speak to. Um, the fact that I'm a part of a worker-owned cooperative business. And oh, like, I think you should. You, like, because it just feels, like, very tied into all of this. Um, but, yeah, that I, I, so, like, you know, because I've known a lot about financial management for a long time, and I think because maybe some, for I have a sort of natural personality orientation away from shame. And like, uh-huh. you know, and that's yeah. kind of always been true for me that like I'm hard to embarrass. And <laughs> I love that about it, you. It, it's and it's weird. Yeah. Like I recognize that it's not normal. Especially you know? in our family. It doesn't, and make, any it doesn't make any sense. We're but a I'm very shame loving like, family. I'm, yeah. And I'm just like very like try to shame me. Um, <laughs> and Actually, just try been that way since you're a kid. Like I just remember you like burping and farting as a kid and just being like, Dang, she mm, just doesn't even care. care. I'm just like, I don't care. Um, and so so which isn't to say that I don't have any of the like um like uh money income class shame stuff that everyone has like i have yeah. i have it just like everyone does but but um but i feel like it it doesn't it doesn't impact me in the same way that i see it impact some other folks in my life yeah and um and and i think in 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 many ways because of becoming a mom at such a young age, like I just had to push through a lot of that. I just had to be like, all right, like I, I can't afford, I I live in New York city and I have two children. I have to be on food stamps and I have to be in the WIC program. And so like, that's like, there's, I don't have a choice about that. Like I just have to figure out how to make it work. And I learned so much about the system having to go through those experiences. I learned so much when you went through that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I ended, I ended up writing a bunch of resources about it. I remember yeah. <laughs> and like publishing them because I was just like, people need to know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like some, like just the, the, the total bananas process of applying for food stamps in New York city where the whole system is designed to screen people out of the system. Yeah. So it's, it's actually like, 
I, I can't tell you the number of times that I would file paperwork and then go back at the appointed time to learn that they had lost my paperwork. Yeah. That was like a very typical part of the experience. There was, you know, you would go to the, you would go to the food stamp office and there's not any actual line or process by which people are, there, it's just a waiting area that's just full of people and you maybe, maybe someone behind the counter knows that you are there waiting, but it, it literally feels like, um, it feels like, a, uh, what's the place like in Dante's Inferno, the place between <laughs> hell and heaven, the purgatory. like purgatory. It feels like a, a purgatory yeah. sort of situation where you're like, this might never end, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah. And I mean, and, and the level of, you know, and it's funny to think about some of the the cultural narratives we have around people who are in those systems yep. compared to the actual lived experience of being in that system and like the narrative that people are like gaming that system. Yeah. Where it's like the level of um, proof you have to show of how poor you are in order to be able to access those those resources. Yeah. And then the frequency with which you have to continue to prove that. Yeah. It's like it's very very hard up against very impossible circumstances where like no mm -hmm. one is receiving your paperwork it is getting lost all the time yeah and then what you get and I think also sharing a little bit about like what do you get like it's like oh when you have food steps or when you're on the way and, and like, yeah and that's the other thing that like to. the way the way you access those resources is really I think like I think that there's just a lot of confusion that people have about how it all works right because for instance, when you get food stamps, thankfully now you get this thing called an EBT card, which works like a debit card. It's an electronic benefits transfer card. So it works like a debit card. So people see people using them in grocery stores and they think that they can just buy whatever they want. But it's but the but the EBT card is attuned to what you're buying. So you can't buy anything with it. You can only buy food. Right. And you can only buy like the kind of food that they Well, that's approve, with WIC. Right? No, oh, with, with, WIC. with okay. food stamps, you can buy any kind of food, but it has to be food. So like if you went up to if you went up to the cash register and you had a bunch of food and beer, the beer would show up as something that the food stamps are not paying for. Right. right. I was just like, Whereas what was the thing that made it so that you had to have like jugs of milk? All WIC, the time? WIC, <laughs> WIC is the program where the way the, the way that program works, or at least the way it worked when I was still in it, which was when I was living in New York City up up to 2010, is um, you literally get on a monthly basis, you literally get um, a series of checks. So like you get a series of checks and on the checks they outline the specific items that you can buy with those checks. Oh, Lord. Um, and so you have to go to the store, you have to match the check to the item and, and not just to the item, but like the brand and the ounce size of the item. Yeah. And then of course you have to go to the register and not all the registers or cashiers are equipped to handle WIC checks. So if you get to the register and you've got WIC checks and you've got a cashier who can't handle them, then that person will be like, WIC! WIC! Like oh they'll yell God. it across the store so they can get someone to yeah. come up who can handle it. And it yeah. takes a long time. So yeah. whoever's behind you in line is getting mad at you. Yeah. And so it's just, it's a crazy, it's like, it's a really, really, uh, it's a process again that is designed to induce shame in people. Right. And you know? I think it's so tied in. Um, I think when we cover food justice and like food access, um, I think it's something to just revisit because yeah. it's so it's so it, I just remember that period and like what food you had access to and trying to figure out like how do we make a nutritional um, offering to children from this the, this <laughs> you exactly know, from and that was the other thing that I, I ended up learning how to make cheese exactly I ended up having to and I remember Sam Sam building me a little um, cheese block because like. Um, or whatever you call those things, the things that like smush it all together. Um, because we were getting so much milk yeah. and, um, and it was very difficult to get any kind of milk replacement. And so we were like, what do we do with all this milk? So we would just, we ended up making lots of queso and like giving it away to people because it was just, you know, so, I mean, it, it's just a, it's a, you, yeah. you end up in this sort of twilight zone of benefits. Right. Yes. Um, mm. And, and I remember when we first moved to Minnesota that I went through the process of applying into the system and, you know, trying to get benefits and, um, and, and of course over, over the years, I've one of the other things that I've benefited from as the youngest kid in our family and as the person who's like who has young children is the financial support of you and April and mom and dad. Right. Mm -hmm. And so 
Um, so at various points, I've had like infusions of cash into my bank accounts when in moments where I was in crisis or uh-huh. just like couldn't afford something. Uh-huh. And I remember one of the times that I went to in when I first moved to Minnesota, um, there was a time that I went to the um, benefits office in the county that we were living in to apply for food stamps. And you have to show your bank statements. Yeah. And they saw in the bank statement that I had recently received a $500 transfer from April. And then they were like interrogating me about it. And I was like, I turned to the woman and I was like, I, I kind of feel like I'm being like, um, punished for the fact that I have a supportive family that's helping me out right now. But I just want to be really clear that like, that's, that's a family member who's helping me because I can't afford something. Yes. It's not like, that's not income. Yeah. And, and the woman who behind the desk was like, well, and this is how it should be. We should turn to church and family first before we turn to the federal government for support. Wow. Or the state government. And I was like, you are a, government worker yeah like you're here you're supposed to be here helping me exactly and you're here telling me yeah that I should be turning to my church and family first and like there's so many layers to why like one I don't go to church but two but like (laughs) there's so many layers to how problematic that is right like the assumption that people even do have family to turn to exactly or the assumption that there's not some way that that could be potentially abusive or vulnerable for them to have to turn to family or to a faith community or something. So there's so much wrong with it. Right. And, and I'm fortunate now, you know, I've been, it's been about, I would say it's been about, uh, five years now since I've had to yeah. uh, five years that I've been out of that system. Yep. Um, but there was a, the basically from like, you know, like 2007 to, um, 2012, I was basically in that system. Um, even with all the amazing support I was getting from people, but, um, I, I feel like I, a, I learned so much about just how to navigate poverty, you know, and I learned so much about how those systems are rigged against poor people. Yes. Um, and it also taught me about the importance of being in that system really taught me the importance of like how of just advocating for myself. Yeah. And so now I'm in a situation where I feel like I, and I feel like that, that, um, that lesson of self advocacy now like threads through the way I show up as a coworker, the way I show up as a consultant, the way I show up as a facilitator, the yes. way that I consult on and re- make recommendations to others about things. It's like, yeah. it's like threaded through everything else where I'm just, I feel very clear about the importance of actually asking for what you need and clearly naming what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then, it's um, that Bill Withers song. Like, no one can fill those of your needs that you don't let show. Like, I yeah. think about that, like, both, 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 like, oh, as a society, we should be structured that way, where it's like, we let our needs show, and we let our, what we have show, and we give and, and receive, not in a transactional way, but, like, from, like, what do people actually need? But I then think about that also in community, that it's like, oh, how do we start to build community around this idea that, like, we we as a community always have enough to meet the needs of the community. You know, so it's always been very easy to me, like if you had a need to be like, oh yeah, I wanna meet that yeah. need. I'm invested in your well-being. I'm invested in the kids' well-being. Um, but then how our society has structured itself so that we don't think that way as a community. We think that way in the unit of family. Mm-hmm. And how that to me, if I think of like, oh, what are the threads of politicization in practice that I've been engaged in? It's been extending that generosity beyond family. So there's several friends in my life who at different points I have supported or gone to for support financially. Mm -hmm. And and giving without an expectation of transaction. You know, it's like I'm not giving because I'm like, you're going to give it back to me. I'm keeping track of it. It's like I'm giving because you need it. And I know that if I ever have a need, um, I'll be able to come to you and it may be a different kind of need altogether. Often it is. Yes. Um, and then also thinking like, what are things we need to have access to as a community? So, I mean, I live in a situation now where um, I have communal access to a boat and communal access to a hot tub 
it's a, a broken car. hot tub, broken hot tub. Um, yeah, and a busted little vehicle, but it's a shared busted little vehicle that gets <laughs> um, several of us around Detroit as we need to. It is really busted. It's okay. It's busted. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like twenty I drove years it old. Yesterday, and I was like, <laughs> I don't know that this car is gonna get me where I'm going, but I'm trusting right now. You know, just if you trust, just talk, I'm to trusting it, emergence with your car. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also like good to just talk to the car. I find it really helps to just be like. <laughs> Hey Turk, <laughs> I call the car Turk because it's a little turquoise car, uh-huh. and um, and it is like twenty years old. It has had moments where it was like I can't really start under these conditions. Mm-hmm. I'm not really up uh, for the uh, task, uh, but we uh. just keep extending its life just a little bit longer. And you know, it we, it doesn't go on long trips or anything like that, right. but it gets around. It gets around, and you know, and it's a share. The fact that it's shared. Um, actually I think has extended its life because it's not ever like with the amount that I travel, the car is never just like oh, yeah. sitting somewhere. It's, it's always use. getting, it's almost da- daily getting some use, some love and some appreciation for having gotten somewhere, someone somewhere. Now you're making me feel you know? bad that I didn't think it when I got out of the car. It's not too late. She's right outside. Ah. Um, <laughs> you can go back down and be like, my bad. my bad. I mostly focused on the weird gurgly noises you make Sorry. when you start. Um, but then also my, my home space and it's, been a navigation because my my this has been such a learning like I remember when I lived in New York and I had my first a little calling an apartment is way too generous but that room that, that I paid for. <laughs> the room I paid a huge amount for with a shared bathroom in the hall it was I loved it it was in Fort Greene right before the peak gentrification happened right. and it was like I could still live you were in like that neighborhood in Fort Greene before Havana Outpost <clears throat> exactly opened. remember when Havana Outpost opened I remember when Havana Outpost opened I remember and I and, and you know what's so interesting is to be like I'm, I was part of a wave also right yeah right so I was like <laughs> I was part of a wave and there was a wave after me there were waves before me right. and you were the foot soldiers of gentrification oh dear that's, let's not say that go ahead no. back to Fort Greene I was like that's so sad <laughs> but I well I mean and trying to keep I'm like trying to stay in that honesty is like as someone who is transient right like everywhere I've moved to has been a place that I'm not from that's been the nature of Mm -hmm. my adult life um and so like each place I've gone to that's been a consideration it's like oh how do I move to a, a place that I can afford and that really works for me that is not an act of displacement for someone else. And, um, and I think about that a lot, but so in that little place in New York, I was so protective over the space. Like I didn't want anyone in there. It was just my little place, my little home. Like I almost never even wanted guests. Like I was just like, this is my space and how that has had to change inside of me to like, nothing is mine. Mm. And so I can have, access to abundance as long as I don't hold it as my abundance mm-hmm. um, so I have this beautiful space um, that I live in now and I love my home but part of what I love about it is that there's all there's a lot of other people yeah. who also have access to it and use it on a regular basis mm-hmm. I have neighbors who come just to watch television I have people who come just to take baths here I use it as a space for writing retreats and then I have, you know, people will come and stay for a long time and do writing retreats while I'm traveling or come and stay and do other organizing work yeah. while I'm traveling. And that feels very important to me to be like, this is an hour space um, and that I have access. You know, I think of your home as like another space of, mm-hmm. of my life yeah. and my friend's house is in you know, Cincinnati and in LA and different spaces. I'm like, we are building a network of places that we all can feel at home. Yeah. And all can go to and migrate to as the seasons change, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But all of this feels like part of my personal practice of being in a more cooperative economic condition. Um, And then, you know, I want you to talk about Aorta as a worker cooperative. I work at Allied Media, which over the past few years has shifted its structure from being like we are an individual institution that just does our own programming Mm -hmm. to becoming a home of sponsored projects that Mm -hmm. allows for lots of different folks to kind of get on their feet as small projects and put work out into the world. So 
Octavia's Brood is a sponsored project. Mm-hmm. Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute is a sponsored project. Mm-hmm. Detroit Narrative Agency is a sponsored project. Um, how to this podcast is probably going to be a sponsored project. Yeah. Like we're it's constantly trying to figure out like how do we bring all these things together and share the backbone resources of organization mm-hmm. so that that nonprofitization is not the, we don't have to keep replicating that model a million times yes. for all these projects, but rather say like, let's just do that once, get really good at it, do the bare minimum of what we need to do to engage with that system. And then have a lot of projects that have a lot of autonomy about how they go about doing that's their work. Beautiful. So that's one model. Mm-hmm. And then can you share a little bit about Aorta? I can talk about Aorta. So Aorta is a worker owned cooperative. Um, and, Obviously, there's a lot of different types of cooperatives. You know, there's food co-ops, there's housing co-ops, there's um, there's agricultural co-ops. Like, you know, there's a wide, wide world of cooperation. Um, not wide enough is our case that we're making at all times, yeah. but there's a wide world of cooperation. Um, but our co-op is a worker-owned co-op, meaning that everybody who... Um, works for the co-op is an owner of the business or is on track to become an owner of the business and so it means that we're all um, salaried through our earnings and we also share we share um, amongst us the surplus of what we earn Um, and it also means that we are a participatory democratic workplace so we all have an equal voice in decision making Um, and And one of the things that's kind of cool about being a co-op of consultants is that the other thing that we're doing at all times is we're consulting on and facilitating with folks who are in the cooperative movement and the movement for a solidarity economy. Yes. And we're... And anyone that we're facilitating with who's not already in that movement, we're trying to push towards it. Because, you know, (laughs) cooperative economics is there there are many countries around the world where you know the cooperative economy is a much bigger share of the economy than it is here it's very very small comparatively in the united states and we really believe that in that we need to continue growing it and we need to grow it as fast as possible because we really see cooperative economy as basically the bridge out of capitalism right like you know how do we understand um, how we generate resources, how we share resources, how we access resources, the cooperative economy makes a case for a particular way to do that in a way that is actually like humane, participatory, and um, within an abundance framework, right? Um, so for me, it's been, it's been, um, it's been so amazing to like find a political home that's also a workplace that yes. that felt like such a huge win that's to basically be like, important. I've been on this journey around like my own, my, my own po- political understanding of economy and, you know, worked for, um, a decade basically in the nonprofit sector, either working for nonprofits or consulting with nonprofits. So yep. I was either like, on staff or the executive director of or a consultant as an independent contractor with nonprofit organizations. And it just, I knew that it was, especially by the time I was an executive director, I was like, this is the most unsustainable fucking thing in the world. And both as like an individual, but also just the, the business model itself is the, the way the business model is structured, partly because it hasn't like been meaningfully updated since its inception in like the 19, 20s um or even earlier than that it's like it the 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 like tax codes that govern nonprofits like haven't actually caught up to the current reality um so that's a problem but also just the model itself it's like it's it nonprofits exist as a way for philanthropists to like um off gas yeah like off gas the wealth that they are generating in service of harm. And then we in the nonprofit sector take that wealth that they are off gassing to us and we try to use it to repair that harm. But it is part of an absolutely like toxic cycle of harm. And so it's just like... Like it means that the only way that nonprofits can continue to exist is if there are, if we continue to have a massive wealth gap um, 
and continue to support the extremely wealthy to have the power that they have to give money to nonprofits. Yes. So it and, is and there is the, complexity yeah. there, right? Like it is yeah. also true that it is also true that a lot of the money that supports nonprofits is a, a, in, in many cases, a majority, depending on the sector you're in, in many cases, the majority of the money that's supporting nonprofits is coming from like regular people. Um, but still the, it's, it's one of those things where it's like maybe 80% of the money that your organization has generated is coming from what would be considered more quote unquote grassroots donors. But the organizational priorities you have are still going to be driven by the philanthropists and foundations that are funding your work because they're the ones who are like, they're, they're running the show basically. Well, so it's, I think there's something, I, I mean, and this might also be a great show to bring on some folks who are like, you know, from the Grassroots Fundraising Institute or other spaces to talk about, because I feel like this is one of the things that's like demystifying. So actually a few organizations have like been popping into my brain during this of mm-hmm. like de- that help me demystify this and I think can help others. Yeah. That's like Grassroots Gift Fundraising Institute is great and they do amazing training for people on like getting re re um, under like understanding the story of nonprofits so differently and like who's actually funding this work mm-hmm. um, and why do we focus still so much of our attention on the major donor major grant things when they right. don't necessarily actually support at the level and with the consistency we need and then there's also um, resource generation um, as an organization that has been working with particularly wealthy people on yeah. learn learning the stories of where their money comes from. And still to this day, one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had in a room of wealthy people was sitting at that conference where they go around and tell their money stories and they have Mm -hmm. to share, you know, this money came from slavery. This money came from the Holocaust. This money came from um, the, you know, from diamond mines. This money came from, right. And it's just like money, large, large, large amounts of money don't come without harm. Money doesn't move without harm. Right. So, when people are like, oh, I'm wealthy and I'm benevolent um, and, and like it's like, OK, then you just haven't gone back far enough to understand where those resources are coming from. Right, right. And so and we have to always understand that as folks who are like living in the society, trying to make a living, that each dollar that passes through still comes mm-hmm. from harm and has a harm root to it. And how do we liberate resources and get back to the place where like, oh, land and human time and energy and effort that's actually yes. the resources yeah. that we want to care for and care about and center. And that's been, and, and I think it's such a helpful frame because like one of the things that I feel like we're really clear about in the cooperative movement is that like, it's not like we're at a point in our society where there's such a thing as like clean money. Yeah. It's more like we're at a point in our society where we're confronted with a choice, you know, like, what is our what is our central activity going to be at this point knowing what we understand to be true about the way money is generated and the way money moves like mm-hmm. how do we begin to move how do we begin to shift those resources into a form of economy that's in support of like dynamic loving compassionate human life well and that i mean i love the movement generations um definition of economy which changed the game for me they call it the management of home economy is like the management of home that's what it breaks down and that reframe of it that re-understanding of it is like oh like it's actually not even about money right money is this thing that we have been trained to place value on um and what actually matters is like home home is like the land you live on the food you can grow from that land the people who you are growing that and caring for that land with the management of home yeah and how do we how do we understand economy that way and then begin to invest in systems Mm -hmm. that allow us to manage home together thanks for listening to our show we're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are an iPhone person. Thanks. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Mother Cyborg, Tunde Olanaran, and Blue Dot Sessions.